we're taking a huge jump in the book of Judges. There's a number of chapters that we're going to miss out. Uh, There's a reason for that. It's the story of Samson. Samson, one of the judges, becomes one of the most focused on judges, really, um, and consumes a number of chapters. But what we want to do is make sure that we get through the book of Judges well so that we can start our journey towards Easter. Uh, And so we've got this week and then two more weeks to conclude Judges. We've already done Samson, so if you go online, you can find the Samson talks um, under the sub, I think the title was Between Two Pillars, the story of Samson. So if you search for that, you'll be able to download the talks for Samson if you want to fill in the gap uh, in the story of Judges. 1989, I think probably some of you weren't born, actually, in 1989. 1989, the dulcet tones of Ian Brown rang out in the middle of Manchester with a Stone Roses song which has become one of their iconic songs, I Want to Be Adored. Some of you are nodding your heads. Some of you are wondering, who are the Stone Roses? I find it a fascinating song. One, because you can write a song with actually hardly any lyrics in, which I think is a really smart move. It's kind of, it's very kind of conservative when it comes to lyrics. Conservative in the sense of them not being many, not particularly conservative in their content. Listen to what he says. I don't need to sell my soul. He's already in me. I want to be adored. That's about it. It's about the content of the song. I want to suggest to you that in those lines, in in that attitude, in that way of thinking, we capture the very heart, the essence of idolatry. You say, well, hang on a sec. Isn't idolatry when we bow down and worship something outside of us? And he's talking about me being at the center, and I want to be adored. This chapter is all about idolatry. And I want to take a journey to understand how we see that attitude of me at the center, me wanting to be adored, is at the heart of idolatry. Five years later, Mark Zuckerberg, I would suggest, gave Ian Brown and all of us who want to be adored the perfect opportunity. It's called a like. (laughs) I want to be adored. I want me to be at the center. I want people to look at me. At the heart of the idolatrous mindset is quite simply this. It's taking God off the rightful throne of our hearts and placing us on that throne. Now the interesting, the fascinating, the amazing thing is that when we worship something outside of that, outside of the God of the Bible, when we make idols for ourselves, we actually remain on the throne even though it looks as though we've put something else on the throne. 
That's the journey that the human heart takes. We look as if we're worshipping something outside of us, but really we're worshipping the idea of us on the throne. That's why in 21st century West Yorkshire, where we haven't got that many totem poles, shrines, ashtara poles, images and idols, that is why we can all be susceptible to the attitude and the heart of idolatry. That's why we can be idolatrous people, even though we don't really look like idolatrous people. Because we take God off the rightful throne of our hearts and place us on the throne. What does idolatry therefore look like? It looks like this. It looks like us controlling the storyline. Let's have a look at how this man called Micah controls the storyline. The first thing I want to say is this. We've been on this journey through Judges. It has been an incredible book. Last week there was a pretty hideous story. Next week there is an even worse story. It's terrible, it's awful, it's horrific. Next week's story. And it's in the Bible. What we see in chapter 17 and chapter 18 is the story of this man, Micah. Look at how it opens up. Verse 1 of Judges chapter 17. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. Then he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, and she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord and my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. That opening is filled with messed up relationships. I stole the silver, mom. 1,100 shekels of silver, if you're interested, is a fascinating amount. 1,100 shekels of silver is actually what Delilah receives for giving the news about Samson in the previous few sections. And now we find 1,100 shekels of silver reappearing, and Micah has nicked them off his mum. And he comes in and he says, That silver that you cursed about, that I heard you declaring a curse over, it was me, I pinched them. Now, the appropriate response at that point is something along the lines of, I don't really think that was a very good thing for you to do. But look at the way the mother responds. The Lord bless you, my son. There is something problematic in this relationship. It looks to me as though already Micah is kind of structuring and shaping a controlling relationship. I can steal the silver, but when I come back and tell you that I've stolen it, you still say, bless 
the Lord bless you, my son. You still, you don't confront me. You don't challenge me. You don't question me. You say that the Lord bless you for bringing back what you already stole. 1,100 shekels of silver is an incredible amount of money. But look at what she, is, what she does. This is God's people. This is God's people. And what she says is, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I consecrate to the Lord the silver to make an idol. The mindset, the thinking is totally confused. It's messed up. It's wrong thinking. And this is God's people who are behaving in this particular way. Do you remember right at the very beginning of the journey of Judges? God spoke to His people and He recognized the failure of His people to confront the issues of the gods of the Canaanites. And He says this to them, I will not drive them out before you, the gods of the Canaanites and the Canaanites. I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. That's what God says. Because you haven't been clear and focused, because you've been kind of laissez-faire, relaxed, chill about this whole issue of being faithful to me, I will not drive the gods out and they will become a snare to you. And here we are towards the back end of the book of Judges where a mother is declaring that a chunk of silver can be dedicated to the Lord to make an idol. What does that say to us? It is a stark warning. If you read this chapter, the narrator doesn't do, he doesn't do two things, which is fascinating. He doesn't say that the mother or Micah were wrong. And he doesn't say that God thinks that it is wrong. Does that mean that it's right? No. What he's actually doing is he's laying out before us a situation where we should actually be weeping because it is a dire mess. It's a shocking state of affairs. And the people, it seems, have allowed all of this other stuff going on in the world around them, all of their other ideas of God, all of their other ideas that are surrounding them of what worship might look like, all of the idols, all of the exciting stuff around them, it has become so commonplace, it has become normalized to them, it has become the normal way of thinking, and they are no longer confronting it. I'm not saying that they, they are jumping out and beating everybody up who says the wrong thing. What I'm saying is that even more difficult is this. They are, they've just, it's become so normal that it's surrounding and absorbed into their thinking. The start, the start of the journey of idolatry, the start of the dethroning of God in our hearts 
is when we are no longer thinking about the stuff around us. When we are no longer looking at the various issues that confront us, the various perspectives, and we are no longer looking at them with a critical perspective where we're saying, how does the message of God relate to that? You might look at this, you might be thinking, I'm really interested in this Christian stuff. Or you might be thinking, I'm really not sure about this Christian stuff. One of the things that I can say to you is this. God of the Bible is interested in the whole of our lives. It's not a little kind of Sunday club that we do. It shapes everything that we do. And therefore it causes us to critique every aspect of our lives, because the whole of our lives are to be reshaped. And Micah and his mother have become so normalized to idols and images and the worship of God in strange ways that it has just become part of their normal life. Tragedy. That's the first thing. There is a controlling relationship and a normalizing of bad stuff. Second is this. We see that from a controlling relationship comes controlling of the gods that we worship. Look at how it unfolds. Verse 4. So after he returned the silver to his mother, he took 200 shekels of silver, gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, made a shrine and he made an ephod. Remember Gideon? He made an ephod. It's just got a little bit worse. It's an ephod with a shrine. He made a shrine, he made an ephod, and he made some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. What do idols look like? What do the gods that we worship look like when they are not the gods, the God of the Bible? They look like this. They look like the kind of God that we might portray as being big and powerful and influential, but in some way we control that God. We control that God. See what Micah has done? He creates a God, and then what he does is he puts his son in as a priest. He says, yeah, I'll create this God. I'll create this God something to worship. And then once that God is something to worship, I'll then create a way for me to control the outcomes. What do we want gods to do for us? We want our gods to say all of the things that we want to hear. That's what a great God is. A God who agrees with us. A God who tells us all the time all the best things for us. A God who tells us what the lottery numbers are for next week. A God who does the stuff that makes us feel comfortable. That's what we do with our gods. That's what we do with the things that we find central to our lives. That's where Micah is. He creates something to worship that is actually a reflection of himself. 
So we say we put God off the throne. That's part of the journey of idolatry. What Micah is actually doing is he's making the gods look a bit like him. I don't know what this silver idol looked like in physical form. But what I do know is that Micah made sure that he could control the outcome of that God. Because he wanted it to look in its responses, in its ideas, in its thinking, just like him. Why? Because it was Micah on the throne of his heart. Not Yahweh. Not the God who brought them out of Egypt. Not the God who they were called to worship. The snare is complete. It's ready. It's laid out, it feels like. That's what God calls it, a snare. It, you know the old, the old, I think it was pr probably Br'er Rabbit or I don't know whether even um, Peter Rabbit might have had the danger of the farmer's snare. It's like this great big circle of rope or string that's all set, ready for Peter Rabbit to trip up on and for the piece of bent uh, tree just to flick away and capture him. That's a snare. That's how God describes it. Micah has now set the snare. Look at the next bit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left the town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah said to him, asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me, be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver. Each year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him. And the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Boom. The snare has just triggered. What does Micah do? He creates this environment where the gods that he worship are the gods that look like him, the gods that make him feel satisfied, the, God that make, the gods that make him feel adored, the gods that make him feel at the center the gods that please him. Then, having created those controlling gods, the next thing he does, through an upstart Levite, for those of you who haven't heard about the Levites, the Levites were the particular tribe of God's people who were set aside to be the priests for God. They were set aside to point the people to God. That was their job. But this Levite, it seems, young guy, it feels like he's a kind of aspirational, looking for an opportunity, sees Micah, he's in startup mode, and he says, wow, this is a great deal. Ten shekels of silver, all my food, 
and I get to be the head guy. I get to be the main priest. Boom, this is fantastic. What a cushy number. Micah, this older guy, says to him, you'll be my father. Wow, power, influence, prestige. Micah's saying, I'll create God so that I'm adored. And the Levite's saying, I want to do a job so that I'm adored. Everybody wants to be adored and nobody wants to adore Yahweh. That's the problem. And here we have this young priest who says, yeah, this is a great job. I'll become your priest. And then at that moment, Micah believes that he controls God. Now I know because I have done this, because I've put this, this guy who's connected to God because he's a Levite priest, and I've brought the two together, I now know that I've got both on my side. I've got the control of both of them. I've got the gods that say the things that I like to say, but that God that sometimes says things that I don't like to hear, I've got him under control as well. And that is the heart of idolatry. I want to control God, not God control me. I've finally achieved the control that I have always been looking for. And actually what we should be doing at this point is weeping because God's people are in the kind of mess that thinks that they can control the God who brought them out of Egypt. What a mess. You say, well, how does it play out? Well, the next chapter, if you get the opportunity, go and read chapter 18. It's fantastic. Chapter 18 the Danites, who haven't got land, these are another of the tribe of God's people. They haven't been apportioned their land yet. What do they do? They go on a raiding mission against their own people. What's the narrator saying? He's saying this, the state of the people of God is such a mess that they are now fighting against each other. That's where they've got to. Do you know what? If the church needs to understand one thing, one of the marks of us making ourselves the center is when we start fighting against ourselves. And that's where God's people have got to. Fighting against themselves. The Danites come along, five guys go and spy out the land. It's kind of a repeat of Joshua. But they're spying out on their own people this time. They come to the place where Micah is, and they find out about Micah. There's a moment where you think this looks good news. Maybe Micah's going to be dealt with here. But they find out about the priest. They find out about the gods. And then they go and find out these, this group of people who are nearby. And they are prosperous people. Very peaceful people. Who are getting on with their lives. And they go back. And they tell their boss. And they say, to, they say I tell you what, over there there's a there's a group of people, they've got a prosperous land, and they are sitting ducks. They live in this peaceful land. They don't think anything bad is going to come on them. We can go and take their land. So the Danites, 600 men, travel into this space. And as they're traveling to go and take on this, this bunch of unaware people who are living a peaceful life, they say, oh, by the way, there's up there, there's a... There's a 
a guy, he's got, he's got a shrine and a temple and he's got gods and he's got a priest. Loads of silver. You know what to do is what they say. What they do is they go up to there, they speak to the priest and they say to the priest, has God given us this land? And the priest says, yes, God's given you the land. But when that, what they then do is they take, they take everything. They take the images, they take the silver, they take the priest, everything's gone. Micah chases after them. When they had gone, this is chapter 18, verse 22, when they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites, and they shouted after them. The Danites turned back and said to Micah, what's the matter with you? That you called out your men to fight. What's up with you? They shout back to Micah. Listen how Micah responds. He replied, you took the gods I made, my priest, and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? I have lost everything. If there is one thing we need to understand about the things that we place our trust in, in this world, it's this. They will let us down. The gods that Micah trusted were bits of silver, but they were filled with all sorts of self-centered ideals. He was secure because of those things. He felt safe. Nothing can rock me. I've got these gods in control. I've got control of Yahweh through the priest that I've anointed. I am safe. I am okay. And then his world came crashing down. And he was actually saying, what else do I have? My world has fallen apart. We do not, we do not generally create gods of silver and idols of silver. The things that we worship are just the same though. They are the things of our own self-identity. They are the things that puts us on the center. They are the things that say, I am secure because I have created this. I have put this together. And what we find is that when they are ripped away, if they are the ultimate things to us, we find that we are left with nothing. We are left with nothing. Our world falls apart. We have no hope. Our security, whether it's our job, whether it's our health, whether it's our family, whatever it might be, the things that we make ultimate things look like us because I want to be like that. And then when they're taken away, we feel if, if they are ultimate things, we feel like we have nothing left. We are all at sea. We are done in. That is when our idols fail. That is when we realize true idolatry is rooted in something which can never 
give us security. It can never give us absolute hope. And what, what, do, we, what, what do we do with this story? Why does it speak to us in 21st century Yorkshire? I think it speaks in this way. At every one of those stages where Micah was controlling his mother, building idols and a priest, when he was controlling Yahweh, at every one of those stages, what did we want to happen? We wanted something to come in and to confront Micah and say, stop, stop. You cannot be at the center. If you make yourself the center, you've had it. That is what God does. And ultimately, that is what Jesus does. He breaks into our lives and He confronts us. He doesn't allow us to go down the line of us being on the center of the thrones of our life. And He says, you are more safe. You are more secure. You are more happy when I am at the center, not when you are at the center. That's when you're happy. That's when you're secure. That's when you're safe. Because I can never fall apart. I can never be stolen from you. I can never be challenged. I can never be defeated. I have defeated the greatest enemy that you can ever see, which is death itself. That's why I can never be defeated. What does Jesus say? In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. The God that we need is a God who confronts us. Not a God who mollycoddles us all the time. Yes, we have a God who comforts us. That's what we need. But we also need a God who confronts us. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says this. For the Word of God in Jesus is alive and active. What's it like? What's God's Word like? It's like this. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. He's picking up there on the old Roman short double-edged sword so that you could cut in both directions. That's how the Roman soldiers, centurions, fought. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you know what we need? We need a God who confronts us. We need a Savior who confronts us. Who says, do you know what? If you go down the line of putting other things on the throne of your hearts, you're going to be in trouble. They can't sustain you. But I love you enough. I love you enough to confront you. I love you enough to cut you in half and remake you so that I am on the throne and you are not on the throne. That is the God of the Bible. That is the purpose of this chapter. So that we will scream out, confront us in our idiocy, in our rebellion, confront us please. And he says, I will. And his name is Jesus. Jesus.